Due to the graphic nature of this cold case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of assault and murder. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. On October 23, 1983, police in San Jose, California, approached the home of 88-year-old Gertrude McCabe. Neighbors had called them. Gertrude wasn't answering her phone, and they were concerned. Officers ring the bell. No answer. They go around the house, calling Gertrude's name and trying doors. The back entrance is unlocked, so they step inside. They move into the den. That's when they see Gertrude. She's lying on the carpet, surrounded by a pool of blood. The closer police look, the worse it gets. Gertrude has been bludgeoned in the head and stabbed at least 20 times. A bite cord is twisted around her neck. Her whole house is in shambles. But officers notice electronics and valuable jewelry have been left untouched. Two bloodied diamond rings still encircle Gertrude's fingers. They realize it's a staged burglary. Officers are stricken by the scene. They have no idea. They'll spend over a decade searching for who would do this. And more importantly, why? I'm Carter Roy, and this is Cold Cases, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Monday, I tell you the story of a crime that went unsolved for years. We'll explore a vast array of offenses, from burglary to arson to murder. On some weeks, forensic breakthroughs will solve long dormant cases. Others will still be left searching for the truth. Today, we're covering the tragic murder of an elderly woman in Southern California. But this story is less about the crime and more about what happens afterward. It's about a wolf in sheep's clothing, a decades-long search for justice, and one woman finding her strength. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. The NBA playoffs are here. And we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even your speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch. Because this is the turn it up to 11 NBA playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. We cover a lot of homicide cases on this show, and many share a similar theme. When a person is murdered, their death echoes. It haunts. A killer doesn't just end the life of a victim. They crush that victim's family and friends. People process that kind of grief differently. Some are numbed by shock. Some gripped by rage. Some are inconsolable in their mourning. But every now and then, a person takes this pain and turns it into something remarkable. 
This is one of those stories. This is how Citizen Jane was made. It's Sunday, October 23rd, 1983. Jane Alexander is at a friend's house in Southern California for a football watch party. She's prepping food in the kitchen. To help you get to know Jane, she's a 61-year-old mother of six. She's wealthy and owns a big house in an affluent SoCal neighborhood called Sleepy Hollow. She's got a lot of friends in the area, and they all know her as lively, energetic, and funny. It hasn't always been that way. Six years ago, Jane's husband died of a heart attack. The sudden loss sent her into a deep depression. But then, three years later, she met Tom O'Donnell, a total charmer and excellent ballroom dancer. They fell in love. Tom moved in with Jane, and the rest is history. Thanks to Tom, Jane seems more like her old self. As she handles things in the kitchen, he's in the other room with the rest of the group, cheering for the San Francisco 49ers. Jane looks over at everyone with contentment. She turns back to the oven, and just as she pulls out a roast, the phone rings. According to James DeLisandro's book, Citizen Jane, a friend is on the line, and he tells Jane she needs to call her cousin Irma immediately. Jane's confused. Irma is 80 years old and lives pretty far away. If there was an emergency, she'd probably call someone else first. Nevertheless, Jane dials her number. Irma is sobbing. She says she just called their Aunt Gertrude's house in San Jose and a police officer answered. She got scared and hung up, but she knows something is wrong. Jane's heart sinks. Gertrude McCabe is 88 years old and more than an aunt. She raised Jane and means the world to her. At this point, she and Irma are some of the only family Jane has left. Jane scared her aunt fell and got hurt or is seriously ill. She hangs up and dials Gertrude's number. An officer answers, then passes the call onto the city coroner. He tells Jane something she never anticipated. Your aunt has been the victim of a homicide. And that's when Jane's life, which she'd so carefully stitched back together after her husband's sudden death, falls apart for a second time. She rattles off questions through the ringing in her ears. Authorities tell her they aren't at liberty to release any more information. Withholding information from the public is standard procedure in many criminal investigations. It helps ensure that certain clues are only known by detectives and the killer. If a suspect mentions a crime scene detail or something else that authorities never revealed, that can indicate guilt. But Jane doesn't know this, and she's in shock. She hangs up and runs into the living room where everyone's gathered around the television. She explains what's happening, and Tom immediately says they should drive to Gertrude's house in San Jose, about two hours away. They arrive that evening. The neighborhood is lined with greenery and expensive houses, the elegance masks the gruesome investigation going on inside Gertrude's home. When Jane and Tom approach the front door, a San Jose police sergeant and two homicide detectives greet them. Then, they let the couple inside. Uh, yeah, you heard that correctly. The police let civilians into an active crime scene. It's not clear why. Maybe it's because Jane demands to know what happened to her aunt or because Gertrude's remains have already been sent to a corner, still, the home hasn't been fully examined or cleaned yet. When Jane walks into the den, her eyes fall on a huge red stain in the carpet. Her aunt's blood. It makes her feel sick. It doesn't help when the police finally brief her on some of the details of Gertrude's death. They say she was beaten and stabbed, likely around 3 p.m. on Saturday afternoon, a full day before her body was found. They leave out the fact that Gertrude was strangled with a bike cord. That's something they choose to keep private. 
Detectives also explained that while the house appeared ransacked when they arrived, it seems like nothing of value was stolen. They think the killers staged a robbery to hide their true motive, which is still a mystery. They do have one potential clue. They found some of Gertrude's checks around the house, but her checkbook register is missing. It's been a while since these were mainstream, so if you don't know, a checkbook register is a personal record of the checks someone has written. It's how a lot of people kept track of their spending before online banking. In Gertrude's case, any of her recent transactions could be a clue. Authorities wonder if Gertrude wrote a check to the person who killed her, and the murderer stole the register to hide it. Well, for now, that's just a theory, and it's getting late. Police want to head home. But Jane tells them she doesn't want to leave. Officers agree to let her and Tom spend the night at Gertrude's house. Again, this is bizarre. Everything inside Gertrude's home could be evidence, which police are supposed to maintain a clear chain of custody over. They shouldn't let any important items out of their sight. But they do. Jane can't sleep that night. Instead, she stays up, rifling through her aunt's papers. She finds Gertrude's will, which states that half of her quarter-million-dollar estate would go to Jane and the other half to Irma. Jane also finds Gertrude's checkbook register inside a dresser drawer. Well, she thinks detectives must have missed it during their original sweep. Detectives return at 10 the next morning. And when Jane gives them the register, well, they're confused. They'd checked every drawer and never spotted it. Nevertheless, they take it from Jane and it provides them with some of their first leads. Based on Gertrude's payment history, as well as interviews with her neighbors, detectives learned she hired a lot of help around the house. She had gardeners, painters, plumbers, and even a driver who took her grocery shopping each week. Police spend the next few months interviewing every person Gertrude hired. One by one, they're all eliminated as potential suspects. Meanwhile, Jane calls the police every day. She hounds them for answers. But by December, authorities are completely stuck. It's barely been two months, but Gertrude's murder has already gone cold. As you can probably imagine, the holiday season isn't exactly cheerful for Jane and Tom or the San Jose Police Department. But in January, something changes. A new detective joins the homicide department. His name is John Cracked. He's been on the force for almost 20 years, and his reputation precedes him. He's known for his diligence and success in prosecuting fraud cases. He has no idea how useful this background will become. For now, the first assignment on his desk is Gertrude McCabe's cold case. It's not unusual for rookie detectives to revisit cold cases. They can review evidence and re-interview witnesses. However, this is mostly a learning experience. They're not actually expected to make headway. But Detective Cracked is different. He wants to solve this crime. First, he returns to the question of motive. Why would someone want an 88-year-old woman dead? Crack searches for the answer in Gertrude's case files and while talking to her old employees again. That's when he's struck by something the other detectives glossed over, Gertrude's estate. Jane and Irma were each set to inherit half of her quarter-million-dollar fortune. Well, it might seem astonishing that the other investigators never looked into this. It could have been an oversight, or perhaps they didn't think the inheritance was a strong enough motive. Both Jane and Irma are already wealthy, so it wouldn't make sense for either of them to resort to murder for money. But Cracked isn't one to rely on assumptions. 
The fact of the matter is that there are two people who stand to profit from Gertrude's death. Again, Irma is 80 years old and lives far away, making her an unlikely culprit. But Jane's only 61, and she's in great health. She and Tom live just two hours from Gertrude. Looking back over the case, Crack notices how the couple inserted themselves into the investigation from the start. They spent the night at the crime scene, which could have provided an opportunity to manipulate evidence. Plus, Jane still calls the department at least every other day. Crack now views Jane and Tom as his top suspects, and he finds something that makes him even more suspicious. Around six months after Gertrude McCabe's murder, Detective John Cracked learns that Jane Alexander's upper-class lifestyle is in serious jeopardy. Her home in Sleepy Hollow is nearly paid off, but she has a $200,000 home equity loan with large monthly payments, almost $3,000. This might not have been a problem, except... Tom put most of that $200,000 in the stock market and lost it. Now, the couple's checking accounts are almost empty, and they barely have anything saved. To top it all off, they had a loan payment due right after Gertrude was murdered. Greed, revenge, lust. Murder investigations often pinpoint why someone has been killed, but not necessarily who did the killing? Every Tuesday on Unsolved Murders, meet the victims, suspects, and investigators of the most notorious criminal cases in history. Part traumatic podcast, part old-time radio show, Unsolved Murders transports you to the scene of a crime, its ensuing investigation, and every attempt to solve the case. You'll soon discover that the murder isn't always the most shocking part of the story. Follow the Spotify original from ParCast, Unsolved Murders. Listen free only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. To Detective Cracked, the case suddenly comes into focus. Jane and Tom needed cash and Jane was set to inherit around $125,000 upon her aunt's death. That, along with any money she'd get selling Gertrude's house and possessions, was more than enough to fix their financial bind. In the spring of 1984, about four months after he was assigned to the case, Crack shows up at Jane's home to question the couple. The detective doesn't mince words, the first thing he asks is, Mrs. Alexander, what is your income? Jane frowns. She says she lives off her late husband's pension and social security, but she doesn't like to deal with finances. She leaves that to Tom. Tom says he's a retired businessman. He used to travel all over Europe and Africa trading diamonds. Through his work, he amassed a $1.2 million trust, which is in a bank in Switzerland. He's just waiting for it to mature. Now, if you're thinking international diamond trading and an overseas account sounds far-fetched, well, so does Detective Cracked. He senses that Jane and Tom are hiding something. He just needs to get them to crack. And he thinks he has just the thing. That May, Cracked returns to the couple's home and shows them a seemingly innocuous item, a Kleenex with a bright pink lipstick stain. He asks Jane if the lipstick could have belonged to Gertrude. Jane shakes her head, 
Well, there's no way her aunt would wear that shade. However, it looks exactly like her own favorite lipstick. She grabs the tube and shows it to the detective. Sure enough, the colors look identical. Cracked leaves with a smile on his face because he knows something Jane doesn't. When officers first arrived at the crime scene, they found the Kleenex in Gertrude's throat. It had been used to try to suffocate her, which means Jane might have just implicated herself in a murder. Cracked is hot on the trail. He focuses on building a solid case against Jane and Tom. To start, he tells the couple that authorities found fingerprints at the scene, so analysts need theirs for, quote, elimination purposes. But none of this is true. It's only so Cracked can see how Jane and Tom respond. Jane seems fine with being fingerprinted, but Tom appears more hesitant. To the detective, this means Jane is a better actor. Then, near the end of July, Crack says he's been working with the FBI to create a psychological profile of Gertrude's killer. Well, that much is true. But in another attempt to gauge Jane and Tom's reactions, Crack also says he expects to arrest the culprit within three months. Jane is pleased. But Tom is impossible to read. Again, Crack feels certain he's onto something big. Then, in mid-August, the detective gets a call that turns his investigation upside down. It's Jane. She's crying so hard she can barely talk. In fits and starts, she tells the detective a story. A few days ago, on August 6th, Jane and Tom were planning a vacation. It was his idea. He said she needed a break from all the stress and heartache of Gertrude's murder. Jane withdrew $10,000 on credit and gave it to Tom to book the trip. That night, Jane went to a friend's house. When she came home, Tom was gone. Two days later, she got a letter from Tom in the mail. He said his past had caught up to him. His diamond trading business was actually a diamond smuggling operation. Some of his associates had been arrested years prior, and they recently got out. Now they were hunting Tom down, looking for revenge, apparently because he never served any time. He had no choice but to go on the run. Tom explicitly told Jane not to get authorities involved. According to him... That would only make matters worse. Jane wrestled with this for days. Finally, she decided Tom might be in serious danger and she had to call the police. Jane tells Cracked that she believes Tom, but Cracked doesn't. International diamond smuggling? A group of vigilantes hunting Tom down? Sounds like the plot of a cheap novel. Plus, the timing seems too convenient. Tom went on the run as soon as Crack told the couple he was closing in on Gertrude's killer. Not to mention Jane's money. To Cracked, it looks like Tom tricked Jane out of $10,000. Cracked asked Jane if she'd be willing to file fraud charges, but she refuses. She says she doesn't want Tom arrested. She just wants him safe. At this point, you're probably asking yourself the same questions that Detective Cracked is. Like, does Jane actually believe Tom's claims? Or is she pretending? Authorities find the answer when they run a background check on Tom. Turns out, well, there's a pattern. Numerous women allege they were engaged to Tom and supported him financially for extended periods of time. One of his exes claims he swindled her out of $80,000, and all the stories ended the same way. Tom took their money and ran. Detective Cracked explains all this to Jane, but she doesn't believe it. She can't. 
She loves Tom. She planned to spend the rest of her life with him. Her denial lasts months. Crack's frustrated, but all he can do is keep investigating. On one of his visits to Jane's house, he learns that she keeps an extremely detailed diary. She wrote about her and Tom's activities almost every single day. The record goes back at least three years. Of course, the very first entry Cracked flips to is Saturday, October 22nd, 1983, the day Gertrude was murdered. What he finds is fascinating. According to Jane's diary, Tom took a trip to the Los Angeles area that weekend. He was gone from Friday morning to Saturday night, supposedly visiting a friend named Harry Carmichael. Soon enough, Cracked is in L.A. standing on Harry's porch. Harry Carmichael is a big, gruff-looking guy. He doesn't invite the detective inside. He doesn't seem happy to be speaking to law enforcement at all. But he does admit that Tom visited him on the weekend in question. He says that Tom spent Friday night at his house, then rented a car in Burbank and drove to Las Vegas on Saturday morning. Tom asked him not to tell Jane he was going to Vegas because he didn't want her to know he was at the casinos. Either way, Harry says Tom couldn't have stayed long as he was back home in Sleepy Hollow that same night. These few details are a treasure trove for Cracked. Jane was under the impression that Tom stayed in Los Angeles that whole time, so someone, either Tom, Harry, or both, is lying. To find out the truth, Crack calls car rental agencies in the area. Eventually, a company in Burbank confirms that Tom borrowed a vehicle from them that weekend. Cracked pays them a visit and uses their records to figure out that Tom drove 669 miles in the car. That's when Crack decides it's time to put Tom's alibi to the test. The detective drives from the rental agency in Burbank to Vegas and back, tracking his distance. He comes up over a hundred miles short. It's possible Tom accumulated those extra miles driving around the city, but Crack thinks that's unlikely. Think about it. It takes almost five hours to drive from Burbank to Vegas. That Saturday, Tom supposedly drove there and back, then caught a flight home. All that travel time would leave Tom with just a few hours in Vegas, and that's being generous. There's no clear reason why he'd kill time driving around. Well, not to mention, why'd he bother to go all the way to Vegas just to stay for such a short time? So Cracked begins his next test. He drives from the car rental agency to Gertrude McCabe's house and back. This time, the detective is only two miles short. He thinks this small distance can be explained by Tom circling Gertrude's neighborhood, making sure the coast was clear. For Detective Cracked, it all adds up. Tom had been living off Jane's wealth for years, and the well ran dry. In a desperate attempt to keep the money flowing and hide the fact that he'd bankrupted her, Tom hatched a plan. He would kill Gertrude, Jane would inherit a pile of cash, and their lives would carry on uninterrupted. Tom's trip to Los Angeles was a carefully planned ruse. He went to Harry's house to give himself an alibi. Then he told Harry he was going to Vegas, but asked him not to tell Jane because he didn't want her to know he was at the casinos. This way, neither Harry nor Jane knew where Tom actually was. And if Jane ever did find out that Tom hadn't been in LA all weekend, he had a lie to fall back on. Tom probably thought he was being clever, but Detective Cracked has him figured out. Now, Crack just needs to convince Jane. He knows it won't be easy, but he has something that might get her 
to see the truth. By this point, it's December of 1984, 14 months since Gertrude's murder and four months since Tom skipped town. Once again, Detective Cracked visits Jane and shows her the lipstick-stained Kleenex. This time, he tells her it was found in Gertrude's throat. Jane is quiet. In this moment, everything clicks. Jane always kissed Tom on the cheek before he left home. Tom always carried a Kleenex in his pocket. She can see the chain of events. She kisses Tom. He wipes his cheek with a tissue, then stuffs the wad back into his pocket. He goes to Gertrude's house. Jane stops there. Her world comes crashing down. She has to admit to herself that Tom never really loved her. Their relationship was one long con, and she fell for it. In a later interview, Jane describes this moment by saying, quote, That's when the word rage enters the scenario. Jane's angry at the police for not zeroing in on Tom sooner. She's angry at herself for sticking up for him. But mostly, she's angry at Tom. And she'll do everything she can to make sure justice is served. Jane finally agrees to file fraud charges against Tom. All Cracked has to do is find him. The NBA playoffs are here, and we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even the speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch, because this is the turn it up to 11 NBA playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. Jane Alexander spends Christmas 1984 alone. Her children are far away, and she doesn't think she can stand to go to a party with all her smiling friends. Not when her life is in shambles. A few days before the new year, she's feeling especially lonely. She reaches out to Harry Carmichael and asks how he spent the holidays. He says he went to Las Vegas to see his buddy John Mackey. They had a big Christmas dinner with some more friends. She asks Harry who was at the dinner. That's when his tone shifts. He clams up. He won't answer any more questions. Strikes Jane as strange, like Harry is hiding something. Because Tom O'Donnell is still missing, and now Jane wonders if he was at that dinner, celebrating without her. Jane shares her suspicion with Detective John Cracked. It's the best lead he's gotten about Tom's possible whereabouts, so he follows it. In January 1985, he arrives at John Mackey's place, the man who hosted the Christmas dinner in Vegas. Mackey opens the door. The detective looks past him into the living room. Right there on the couch is Tom O'Donnell. His gray hair has been dyed a ridiculous shade of brown. It's an absurd look, befitting of the man who wove tales of diamond smuggling. Cracked arrest Tom for defrauding Jane Alexander, and within days, he's transported to California to await trial. While Tom languishes in his jail cell, Jane and Detective Cracked work on building their fraud case against him. They review Jane's finances. The devastation becomes all too clear. Between the home equity loan, Various credit cards and borrowing from friends and family, Tom has accumulated over $300,000 of debt. And Jane is responsible for all of it. On top of this, Irma was named as the executor of Gertrude's estate, which means it's up to her and her lawyer to divvy up the inheritance and sell Gertrude's property. They're moving so slowly that for now, 
Jane can't touch any of the money she's supposed to receive. If Jane can't figure out a way to dig herself out of this hole, she's going to have to declare bankruptcy. She might even lose her house. Jane's children are incredibly concerned about her. Two of her sons invite her to move in with them, but Jane declines. None of her kids live in Southern California, and she won't consider leaving the area. Because to her, this isn't about money. It's not even about her house. The fraud charge is just a stepping stone. It's a way to buy time until she and Detective Crack can find irrefutable evidence that Tom murdered Gertrude McCabe. Until Tom faces justice for that, Jane isn't going anywhere. Jane finds a job as a receptionist at a nearby senior living facility. It's enough to keep her head above water for now. Plus, the job is good for her mental health. When she's there, she's got something other than fraud and murder to focus on. But off the clock, Jane obsesses about Tom. She hardly eats and spends her nights lying awake, thinking about the depth of his betrayal. It goes on like this for a year, until his fraud trial begins in January 1986. Tom is charged with embezzlement, grand theft, and obtaining money under false pretenses. When he takes the stand, he repeats the same story he gave Jane. He has a large offshore trust that's tied up at the moment, and he only ran away to avoid the international diamond smugglers who are trying to hunt him down. Tom's claims are so ridiculous that some people in the courtroom laugh. It doesn't get any better for him when the prosecution shows that there's zero evidence of this million-dollar trust in Switzerland or elsewhere. There's no reason to believe Tom was ever involved in the diamond trade either. His whole life story is a sham. In the end, he's found guilty on all counts and given the maximum sentence, three years and eight months behind bars. Jane's glad, but she isn't satisfied. Tom still hasn't been charged with her aunt's murder, and his sentencing doesn't help her get out of the debt he caused. At this point, things go downhill fast. Jane continues hounding the police about Gertrude's still cold case. Detective Cracked is on board. The problem is, he hasn't been able to find a district attorney who's willing to prosecute. The decision to prosecute a case is more complicated than you might think. A lot of DAs won't bring charges against someone who they feel is likely to be acquitted. Officials want to have a solid case against a suspect before they bring them to trial. And I know what you're thinking. How do they not already have a solid case against Tom O'Donnell? Well, in some ways they do. The circumstantial evidence makes him look extremely guilty. But most DAs want more than that. They want a direct link between a suspect and a crime, like physical evidence or a confession. In this case, they don't have that. During this time, Jane's financial situation gets worse. Gertrude's house has fallen into disrepair, so money from the estate is being funneled into fixing various damages. When Irma finally does sell the house, it's at a huge loss. The inheritance that was supposed to save Jane never comes through. Jane has no choice but to file for bankruptcy. In April 1986, she gets a letter that her house is being foreclosed. The next month, she's evicted. Her children invite her to move in with them again, but Jane has the same answer as before. She has to stay in California. She has to keep the ball rolling in Gertrude's case. Months pass as Jane tries to get back on her feet while bouncing between cheap studio apartments. Then, in June 1987, she gets a call from Detective Cracked. He tells her, 
Tom has been released from prison early for good behavior. It's only been 18 months and he's a free man again. Another year passes with no movement in Gertrude's case. In October 1988, five years since Gertrude's death, Cracked calls Jane again. His voice is somber. He tells her he can't do this anymore. He's burnt out. He's stepping down and handing the investigation over to a rookie detective. Jane feels the floor fall out from beneath her. Justice seems so far away. A few weeks later, Jane has lunch with the new detective. His name is Jeff Wilmette. He's new to homicide, and just like Detective Crack so many years before, he gets Gertrude's cold case as a sort of test run. He's in the middle of re-interviewing witnesses and going over all the available evidence with a fine-tooth comb. His meeting with Jane actually leaves her feeling hopeful. Wilmette seems a lot like her. Fiery. Driven. Ready to see a killer behind bars. Later in November, Wilmette calls Jane and asks about something that stuck out to him in the case file. Gertrude's checkbook register. Well, Jane repeats the same story she told police back in 1983. She found it in one of Gertrude's dresser drawers. Wilmette goes back through the crime scene photos. He finds pictures of the inside of the drawer where Jane found the registry. But in the photos, it's empty. Police didn't miss the checkbook register. It wasn't there. This means someone must have planted it after authorities searched Gertrude's house. And there's only one person who could have done that. Tom O'Donnell. Wilmette sends this discovery up the chain, hoping it'll be enough to get a DA to prosecute. It takes another two years to get through all the bureaucratic red tape. Two years of Jane Alexander moving from apartment to apartment, working a desk job where she should be retired, and lying awake at night, praying for a breakthrough. Finally, in November of 1991, Wilmette calls to tell Jane the news she's been waiting eight years to hear. There's a warrant out for Tom's arrest. He's being charged with first-degree murder. The San Jose Police Department spends the next four months trying to track Tom down. In March 1992, they find him in Los Angeles, living in the home of yet another wealthy widow. This time, authorities put an end to the con before it can go too far. They place Tom behind bars, and for the first time in almost a decade, Jane feels like she can breathe. But the work isn't done. Just because Tom has been arrested doesn't mean a jury will find him guilty. Now, it's his lawyer against the state, and Tom's attorney knows how to work the system. He files multiple requests for trial date extensions. It seems like his strategy is to delay the proceedings as long as possible. It's frustrating for Jane, who's waited long enough for closure. But for Joyce Allegro, the prosecutor assigned to the case, it's an opportunity to build an airtight argument against Tom. According to Annie's cold case files, Allegro pours over all the information detectives cracked and Wimette give her. It seems like every time a new person looks at this case, they find details others may have missed or thought were unimportant. And Allegro is no different. Nestled in the stack of evidence, she finds not one, but two bombshells. Okay, first let's go back to October 1983. The timeline is important, so remember. Gertrude McCabe died on Saturday the 22nd. 
Her body was found on Sunday the 23rd. In the detective's case files, Joyce Allegro finds records of a phone call Tom made on Saturday. He contacted his nephew and niece-in-law, to whom he owed $15,000, and told them he'd be able to pay them back soon. He said Gertrude McCabe had just passed away, and he and Jane were about to inherit a windfall. Again, he told them this on Saturday, meaning Tom knew Gertrude was dead before police had discovered her body. As if that wasn't enough, there's a second incriminating call. This one happened on Monday, October 24th. Tom contacted Jane's son and daughter-in-law to deliver the news of Gertrude's death, and he gave them a detail they couldn't forget. He said Gertrude had been stabbed and garroted. It's an odd choice of words, but it means she was strangled with some kind of wire or rope, or a bike cord. As I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, that's a detail police kept secret. Nobody should have known Gertrude was strangled with a bike cord. Nobody except detectives and the killer. When Tom's murder trial begins in April 1996, Joyce Allegro has an arsenal of circumstantial evidence against him. His previous fraud charges, his clear motive to murder Gertrude, the lipstick-stained Kleenex, the register, and the fact that Tom knew information only the killer could. It's overwhelming. Tom's lawyer doesn't even try to argue against these facts. Instead, he attacks Jane's personality. He accuses her of having a victim complex and making everything up. He claims she's so desperate to get justice for her aunt that she's willing to accuse anyone of murder. The proceedings last two and a half agonizing months. During that time, Jane spends nine days in a row testifying, and she learns something new. Apparently, soon after Gertrude died, Tom took out a life insurance policy on Jane. In the event of her death, he'd receive almost $250,000. Jane can connect the dots. She leaves the stand deeply shaken. In mid-July, each side rests their case. The jury spends the next week deliberating. Jane is sick with anticipation. Finally, the jury reaches a verdict. They find Tom guilty of first-degree murder. He's sentenced to 25 years to life. Jane is a mess of tears and gratitude. She says, quote, I just felt that Aunt Gert could rest in peace. After 13 years, the case is finally closed. But this isn't the end of Jane's story. She learned a lot throughout the investigation. She knows how slow the criminal justice system is and how hard it can be to bring a case to trial. She knows guilty people can go free for years, sometimes forever. Most of all, Jane has learned what it means to be a victim and how much strength and determination it can take to get justice. So, she sets her sights on helping other people impacted by violent crimes. In 1994, Jane co-founds a nonprofit organization called Citizens Against Homicide. She sends out newsletters with information about unsolved cases, advocates for cold investigations to be reopened, and lobbies against parole for convicted killers. Over the years, she helps hundreds of people and plays a major role in getting cold cases solved. In 1997, 
She is awarded the Patricia Lewis Witness of the Year Award from the California DA's Association for her tireless effort in finding justice for her aunt. In 2006, she receives the Minerva Award, which honors women who've done extraordinary things. Two years later, when Jane is 86 years old, she's diagnosed with cancer. She dies in December 2008. But she leaves behind an unforgettable legacy. Her biographer, James D'Alessandro, nicknames her Citizen Jane. She becomes an emblem of truth, healing, and activism. In D'Alessandro's words, She was a human dynamo. She had an energy, enthusiasm, obsession, and commitment to justice that was extraordinary. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back next time with another Cold Case. For more information on the murder of Gertrude McCabe, amongst the many sources we used, we found Citizen Jane, the true story of one woman's heroic struggle to catch a killer by James D'Alessandro, extremely helpful to our research. Jane Alexander's organization, Citizens Against Homicide, continues to advocate for and support families and friends of homicide victims. To learn more, visit www.citizensagainsthomicide.org. You can find all episodes of Cold Cases and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Cold Cases is a Spotify original from ParCast with executive producers Max Cutler and Drew Cole. Our head of programming is Julian Boisreau. This show was developed by Mickey Taylor. Our supervising sound designer is Russell Nash, with Nick Johnson as our head of production and quality control by Spencer Howard. Ryan O'Leary-Jones is our supervising editor, and Derek Jennings is our writing lead. This episode of Called Cases was written by Karis Allen, Edited by Sarah Batchelor and Kate Murdoch, fact-checked by Haley Milliken, researched by Mickey Taylor, with sound design by Russell Nash, and produced by Aaron Larson. I'm Carter Roy. Lack of evidence, poor police work, clever criminals. Whatever the reason, some murders remain unsolved. Every Tuesday, Unsolved Murders explores the facts of a real-life cold case. Part dramatic podcast, part old-time radio show. Join the ensemble cast of actors as they take you on an exhilarating journey through the crime scene and its ensuing investigation. Follow the Spotify original from ParCast, Unsolved Murders. Listen free only on Spotify.